3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast. Today you'll hear conversations on politics, alternative news, community actions and other updates. So now we'll hear from Professor Helen Berry, who is an expert in climate change and mental health. Helen is an honorary professor at the Australian Institute of Health Innovation at Macquarie University. She is a widely cited psychiatric epidemiologist and expert in how climate change, disasters and social and physical place influence mental health and well-being. So you you actually recently published a piece in the OECD blog titled, What Does Climate Change Have to Do with Mental Health and Young People? And before we get to young people, can you just tell us what is the link between climate change and mental health more broadly? Sure. One of the things I find most interesting about this and about mental health generally is the complexity of the links. So it's not a straightforward thing. Mental health comes from a whole lot of different factors that all interact, some of them in pernicious ways and some of them in good ways, to give us what we experience as our mental health any day of the week. And climate change makes that a whole lot more complex because climate change itself is very complex. So I think the the really important things to try and understand about mental health is where it comes from. If we just look at mental illness and psychiatric diagnoses, all we're ever going to be doing is mopping up instead of never turning off the tap, ever turning off the tap. Researchers and practitioners and people in general tend to focus on the symptoms and try and do something about that. And they end up doing things like recommending more types of treatment or more drugs or training more psychiatrists or mental health nurses and so on. And all of that's very valuable and very much needed. We definitely need better treatments. We definitely need more mental health care professionals of all sorts of different kinds. And But what we don't do nearly enough of, often what we don't do any of at all, is trying to understand where mental health, good and bad, comes from. And it's only really if we, if we start to try and do that that we can understand what causes our mental health, good or bad, and do things further up the causal chain that will stop those negative outcomes and promote the good ones. And so that's what I'm really interested in. And, and perhaps here you could tell us a little bit more about how or what are the effects of climate change um, on the mental health of young people? Well, perhaps if I talk about how climate change actually does affect mental health. So if we start at the, the end of the causal process, if you like, when the floodwaters come all the way down the mountain and landed on someone. So the immediate 
relationship between climate change and mental health is two things. One is that the issue of climate change is getting really, really bad. Almost everybody understands the climate is changing across the globe and mostly in really bad ways. And that is a scary thing. So people are starting to worry a lot more about climate change now and sometimes getting quite anxious and even depressed about it. So that's one way in which climate change is affecting mental health directly through people worrying about it and sometimes worrying a lot about it. The other way is that, that, we, that we very easily see is that it's affecting the kind of weather we get. And again, mostly in negative ways. So it's creating more frequent and more long lasting and more intense weather related disasters like droughts and storms and cyclones and floods and bushfires and so on that we're familiar with. And when people are exposed to those kinds of things, either directly, so their home is destroyed in a bushfire or they're exposed to drought over a number of years and they're indigenous people living close to the land or farmers living off the land and so on then those, those kinds of events affect people's mental health very directly. Interestingly, they seem to differ in their effects between what we call acute disasters like floods and fires and chronic disasters like droughts and salination of land. And the acute disasters seem to be more related to post-traumatic stress disorders and other anxiety and stress disorders whereas slow things like drought seem to be more closely related to depression. So it seems like the kind of disaster that you're living with affects the kind of mental health outcome you may have. And of course, you may be living with both of those. So they're the obvious ways that, that people are, are harmed, they get caught up in disasters. Going a little bit further up the causal chain, these disasters can also cause damage to things that matter for mental health. So, for example, they can, they can damage infrastructure, like they can damage roads and bridges or stop trains running. They can bring down power lines or telecommunications towers or things like that. So the things that we rely on to go about our normal business or especially the things we rely on to keep in touch with one another. When people are caught up in, in disasters, if they end up having to move out of their own homes, even for a short period of time, that's very damaging for mental health. And if we keep going further up the causal chain, then these climate-related disasters, if, they, if they're bad enough within a single community, they can damage the economic circumstances of a whole area or a town and when that happens, that causes problems with social capital in communities because people start leaving those communities if they're too badly damaged or they die. And very often, the people who leave first are those who are most able to leave. So they tend to be those who are fittest or who have the most financial resources or who have very good networks elsewhere that can help them. And they leave behind those with fewer resources. So those who are left behind have even fewer resources to go to share about amongst them. And all of these factors affect mental health. We can also find that weather-related disasters damage our natural environment. So sometimes people uh, just feel a great sadness at seeing their beautiful land around them destroyed. Um, that's uh, often called solastalgia or the kind of homesickness that we feel for countryside or land that's been damaged. 
So there are lots and lots of these indirect ways that climate change affects mental health directly and then also indirectly. There's a very important indirect effect that I focus on quite a lot in my work, and that's at the political level. And people are very sensitive to what's going on at the political level, even if they don't directly follow politics or take any real interest in current affairs, they still absorb what things are like. So I don't know whether you know, but in countries that have right-leaning governments, suicide rates are higher than in countries with left-leaning governments. And the same goes for states. And people have wondered why that is. And, um, and authors of the study have suggested, and I agree, or I would go further, that it's something about the nature of the, the implicit message that right-wing governments send. And what I think it is, is that right-wing governments send the message that it's all about the individual and I'm okay, and if you're not okay, that's somehow your fault. Whereas left-leaning politics are more about understanding groups and the collective and putting emphasis on making sure that the whole community is happy and that people aren't left behind. So when the world, when the people of the world can see the leaders of the world failing to act on climate change or failing to act strongly enough, that in its own right is deeply depressing and anxiety provoking because we feel helpless in the face of, um, of these decisions being made so far above our own pay grades. And I think that that's a, a really important um, point that doesn't get made often enough. When people are thinking about climate change and mental health, they, they tend to think about what's immediately obvious and not what's going on behind the scenes. And I think this is where one of the areas in which this connects very strongly to how young people are experiencing climate change. And being young, they have, um, they have a number of perspectives that are different from older, older generations like my own. So one thing about being young is in being young, you have a whole lot more of your life ahead of you. And so you can see a whole lot more of your future affected by climate change. So for somebody in their 80s, they may, may well think and they say to me, you know, it's not really a big issue for me. I'll be dead before all of this happens. Whereas for young people, they're looking at 60, maybe even 70 years in which they're going to have to live in this climate changed world, somehow survive in it. So I think that's one reason that it's more of an issue for young people. And for very young people, those under the age of 25, particularly children and those in early adolescence, then um, they're not yet, their brains are not yet fully mature. So for children and, and, and young adolescents in particular, it can be very difficult for them cognitively to work out what's happening. And all of that means that you have less that you can rely on to deal with thoughts and feelings about climate change and also what it's actually doing to our physical environment. I think there's a common thread in, in what you were saying and what um, a lot of uh, young activists say, which is to do with the more structural issues causing climate change on, on one hand, but also causing this, as you mentioned, these kind of individualising politics leading to poor mental health. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit more about these broader structural issues. Climate change is more damaging to people who belong to categories that are 
excluded or disadvantaged in society more than it affects other people. So everybody will be affected by climate change. Everybody already is being affected by it. There's no escaping it. So to the extent that you belong to disadvantaged categories, um, you will be more and more hard hit by climate change relative to somebody who isn't. So if you think about the lives of people who don't have homes to go to and who um, have to couch surf or live in their cars or even live on the streets, and you think about what it must be like to deal with a heat wave or a flood in that situation compared to being um, very wealthy, you can start to imagine the different ways that climate change differentially affects people. And it differentially affects younger people more than more than, than older people, because by and large, younger people have fewer resources than they than they will have when they're when they're older and their careers and lives are more mature. So I think when we think about the effect of climate change on mental health and its relationship to disadvantage, then it's important to understand that it lands very heavily on a small minority of people by and large. So that doesn't mean it, it doesn't touch everybody's lives. Of course it does and it can, but by and large it affects the lives of that minority of people who are already living with the bulk of society's disadvantage. And the same is true globally. And um, we just see it in an even bigger way in countries which as a whole are living with disadvantage. So if we look at even the poorest African countries, for example, we still see structural disadvantage and advantage. There's a, still a handful of wealthy industrialists or princes or whatever who, who are very wealthy, even in these poorest of poor countries, and then a huge mass of people who have almost nothing. Even in those countries, there's a structure to disadvantage. And wherever wherever you find disadvantage, then you'll find the effects of climate change hitting much harder. And because of that, you also find mental health are more severely and more extremely damaged. Mental health in society is very patterned, just like disadvantage. The bulk of mental health problems and the worst mental health problems are found amongst the disadvantaged group, that group in society who who has all the disadvantage, which has all the disadvantages, where you find disadvantage is where you find most of the mental health problems. A lot of communities started getting together and doing more sort of community-based work, such as um, collective farms. There's different talk on food sovereignty and different types of sovereignties to sort of deal with not only climate change, but um, the inequalities that people face under capitalism. You mentioned uh, before in our previous chats, uh, that there were some tips that uh, you wanted to share with our listeners. More options for taking action, I think, than, than tips exactly. But um, what I was just right. talking about is one of them. So taking collective action, and you've come up with some other really great examples where people are engaging in food cooperatives or farming cooperatives, or if they're in cities, they, they've got a, a shared veggie garden, a community garden where they can grow veggies together and doing those sorts of things are so important. And I think one of the most important things that we can do individually and as a, a group amongst friends or like-minded um, people taking similar action is to remind each other that um, 
we're not going mad in worrying about climate change. We're not imagining something that isn't happening. And we're not stuck in a situation that we can't do something about. If we try to act as individuals on our own, then we probably are stuck in a situation we can't do something about. But if we join together in groups, we certainly can. And we only have to make a small contribution each for it to make a very big difference. So people should be kind on themselves is my main message, um, really about what people can do and inform themselves, of course, get mental health support uh, if they need it, of course, do all of those things as an individual. Um, but also remember that we're not going mad. This is really happening. We're not imagining things and that there are things that we can do. And even if at the moment there's pretty much nothing we can do, to be kind on ourselves and understand that if that's our circumstance right now, then that's the reality we're living with. And if we can't do anything, then we can't do anything. And we shouldn't be feeling bad about that or being made to feel bad about that. If we can do something, it might be something really, really small, like um, participating in a community garden or carpooling one day a month or something very small. And that's, that's great. That's plenty. And um, if we can do more, great. And the more that we can do that puts us in, in touch with others in a positive way, doing activities we enjoy, being with like-minded others, um, that's really great for mental health. And number one thing that's great for mental health is social connectedness. So to the extent that we can make that part of whatever we do, then, then we're acting really smart. And being kind to ourselves and doing whatever we can do and taking care of our social connectedness the best we possibly can um, is really all that we need to do as individuals and taking part in collective action on a bigger scale if we can and if we're willing to do that. So I think it's really important to understand that collective action, whether it's in little groups or great huge groups like the School Strike for Climate, are much more doable and much more feasible for people to, to do. And that in meeting other like-minded individuals when they're taking action, they can also get some social support and social connectedness along the way, which is so very protective for mental health. That was Professor Helen Berry, who is an expert in climate change and mental health. And we'll have the links to her recently published articles on our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Shahrazad Blue. That was Shahrazad Blue talking with Professor Helen Berry. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Great piece there looking at how climate change impacts mental health. It's Monday morning, 7.18am. My name's Evan Wallace and good morning. Have a number of great stories for you today and some excellent music, including this piece by Club World. It's Tropical Para.
message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. off the National Weekend of Action Against AUKUS, get down to the State Library on Friday the 10th of December for International Human Rights Day, calling for human rights and not another military pact. The AUKUS pact seeks to tie Australia into a forever partnership with the US and UK involving military, education, resource extraction, technology development, manufacturing. War is the antithesis of human rights wreaking environmental destruction that not only endangers First Nations communities on the front lines, but generations of our children to come. Come and take back the streets with music, performance and speeches with MC Tom Ballard, Scott Ludlam, Liz Turner, 3CR's Jacob Grech, Combat Wombat and the Solidarity Sound System. Join us on Friday, December 10th at the State Library at 5.15pm and visit renegadeactivist.org for more information. Coming up at the Nightcap, Better Late, running till 3am every Friday and Saturday, featuring the best local and international bands and DJs, including Zeitgeist Freedom Energy Exchange, Gypsy Brown with Tando, Spasta with Adriana and Odd Mob, Domingo Latino Sundays with La Influencia and Calle Luna. Upcoming shows including Art vs Science, ModCon, I Know Leopard and more. For info and tickets, head to thenightcat.com.au. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. I am Evan. You're about to hear a piece with Kevin and Zeb, who caught up with Jessica Morrison about housing on the Bass Coast. At this event, um, it's a really important topic that we need to be tuned into the moment. We know that there are different strains and struggles and inequalities as to how housing is geared at the moment across the state. So, excellent piece. Have a listen. This is 3CR. It's Monday Breakfast. Okay, on the line now, we've got Jessica Harrison from uh, Down Wonthaggy Way. Uh, Jessica, a number of times, been on this program talking about desalination plant years ago. But, Jess, um, at the moment, it's, it's housing. What's the issue down there with housing? Oh, well, in the desal, the bad old days of when the desal plant was being built, there was a real increase in rents because the desal workers were using their their generous entitlements to basically rent all the properties. But now what we have is really the effect of COVID and possibly a sort of general chaos of capitalism type effect, which Mm -hmm. is that 
it's very hard to find places to rent here that you can actually afford. And so, um, so yes, the average rent for a three-bedroom house is around 400 a week, um, which we find a real shock because everyone's used to things being a bit cheaper here. And also, um, we don't really know. It's, it could easily be sort of getting higher than that. Um, I don't know. You would know more about the average price for for um, rental in, in Melbourne, I mean. Um, but, uh, yeah, so we've it's been, since COVID, there have always been a few people um, sleeping rough. And um, during, at the beginning of, before the COVID hit, COVID hit last year, we ran a meeting with Defend and Extend Public Housing and PIPSI, um, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests. And um, that was about the housing issue because, the caravan park, which um, a lot of people live in when there's not much else possible, was demolished, and we wanted to see some real, you know, immediate local action to provide that kind of accommodation, and um, we didn't see it. Does this? And obviously, there must be a lot of people down there on either on low incomes or on on welfare, or, or you know, who, who desperately need low cost housing. That's right, yes. And so there hasn't been, as far as I've lived here for around 20 years, but I mean, as far as I can tell from talking to the locals, there hasn't really been a substantial building program for public housing here for, you know, around 40 years. And so we have our little pockets of public housing and we've got people now in our group who um, are are part of of public housing tenants. But what happened was, due to the fact we've got a brand spanking new Labor MP in the area, um, that um, $25 million's actually been allocated by the Andrews government for building, or well, they're calling it social housing, affordable housing, etc. Mm-hmm. So um, our group really exists to get the best possible outcome for that $25 million. And of course, a lot of people are throwing around a lot of fun ideas like tiny homes and, um, you know, this and that. But really... The money's there. It's our, it's our collective money, and we want it to be spent on good, secure housing, and we want it to be capped at 25% of people's income um, because there's no point in having housing that could end up in the private sector or could not or could be pegged to the market rents. Yeah, the, the small pockets of public housing you talk about, have some of those also been sold off or... Effectively privatised. Been actually no, they haven't been. Um, luckily, of course, we're aware of what's been happening in Melbourne with that the running the running down process, and then the oh no, they're they're run down. Therefore, we should sell them off type scenario. <laughs> and, and I saw that when I lived in Britain in the eighties as well under Thatcher. So mm. um, I'm aware of that whole process. But the public housing that we've got in Wonsaggi is pretty good. It hasn't got solar, so some of our friends who were there find the bills a bit hard. Um, and there is also some community housing, which does have retrofitted solar PV and um, solar hot water. So, you know, there's, there's positive things, and we, of course, want the public housing to be retrofitted as well for solar. And the, the other people who are there want some, you know, communal facilities and so on. So... Um, we've got a lot of um, irons in the fire, and so we're trying. We're having a public meeting on the fourth of December, 
where we hope we can um, just really air all those issues. And we've got a lot of passionate local people who are, who are part of, for example, Wonfaggy Urban Land Care. And so they're aware of where all the public land is around. <laughs> and, and we basically want that public land to have good, secure housing on it. I mean, if it was in Melbourne, of course, they'd give it over to a private developer and it'd become very expensive apartments or something. But uh, <clears throat> let's hope. Um, just the, um, the the people in in well, not even in people in public housing, people there generally, uh, we're seeing stories increasingly of people having to choose between feeding the kids, between paying the rent, between paying the you mentioned the electricity oh. bills. Um, that that must be an ongoing problem for people now. It seems to be increasing poverty in the community. Oh, absolutely, because we also have quite an active branch of the um, Australian Unemployed Workers' Union, and so we get... Oh, last year we got a lot of media, that's basically what we call poverty porn, where they want to talk to you about how bad everything is. Um, But I got a great quote from one of the local members of the union... He said, well, you can either choose to have a life or you can eat, but not both. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Why am I laughing at that? It's not funny, is it? (laughs) Yeah, well, that's it. Um, But, yeah, so people have taken matters into their own hands and there are very few people tucked away in the bush (laughs) um, who the locals, as far as I know, support. Well, they're still there. (laughs) In fact, one guy's got got a, a place that with a sign on it saying private property, which is pretty funny <laughs> because he's actually, yeah, on public land. But um, means, it, meant, it means that he's been left alone because people tend to respect yeah, a, nice. a sign saying private property. <laughs> um, but really, um, it can't go on. I mean, those are the people we know about. People were also sleeping in the school, which has, is the old school, um, there's been a new school built since um, since we got a Labor MP, basically. Um, but, uh, yeah, people are hanging on in quiet desperation. And um, already, before, when we were planning our public meeting, there were letters in the local paper of people saying, look, I'm due for eviction now, and I don't know what I'm going to do. So, of course, I mean, the idea of a sort of tent city and all that could be possible in a, in a bigger area, but... It's quite hard in a small town because everyone knows each other. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and so the, the tents just happen on the quiet. But we're pretty stirred up and we've got great people in our group, you know, who've got the sort of, who are the one faggy locals from the mining days or connected to them. Um, and so, yeah, we're hoping that we can really push things forward. And, yeah, talk about... And we will end up talking about a whole lot of things, not just housing, you know, just about how hard it is to live in the system as it is now, where people are forced to go on ridiculous courses that mean nothing um, or and, you know, get their... Um, get demerit points from the job agencies, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and there are people obviously sleeping rough there then. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. Well, because we, I help run a, a free um, food outlet at the community house where we just put the food out in boxes um, and people just take what they want. So it's a really, you don't have to, um, you know, give your details or anything the way you do with the established charities like Salvos. So we're aware of that. We know, we've got to know some of the people who are sleeping rough. We don't know where they're sleeping rough, but 
I've talked to them about, you know, is the food that we're putting out the kind of stuff you need? And they all went, yeah, great, it's really good. Um, so, yeah, we're sort of in touch with the situation and and where, you know, how quickly we'll actually see um, housing built is another question because we don't want it to hang on, you know. We don't want, you know, the election cycle to continue with there still being this no provision for actual roofs and, you know, houses for people. Another thing that's happened in the last week, one of the local councillors put forward um, a resolution that um, roadside verges could be used for building public public housing. So we're sort of keen on that, but of course some people have pointed out some of the land might not be a very relaxing place to live because it's not very good. But, you know, we have got a lot of roadside verges in Wonsaggy because the town was built as a um, state coal mine town so it was actually planned. It was originally a tent town so it shows it's ironic that um, that now people are living in tents because they can't afford the rent. So mm. Back to the future so to speak. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The the money that was allocated, it was allocated, um, the government talks about social housing, it talks about community housing, it talks about affordable housing, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, uh, um, really, as we know, it really does, as we, we labour this on this program time and again, we, we, it really talks anymore about public housing as such. But is any of that money allocated for one thing or are you trying to get housing built there? No, um, it's it's allocated for the Bass Coast Shire, which includes Phillip Island and Montaggy. Oh, well, and yeah. so there is $25 million, um, and possibly more allocated. So, you know, it is pretty exciting. I mean, we couldn't quite believe it when we heard it. Um, you know, our little meagre public housing units that, you know, everyone, of, of course, are occupied... Um, and then, of course, the other thing that concerns us is should be more short-term housing. At the moment, there are a few little tucked-away units that people get put in for. They're supposed to be put in for three months until they can get more secure accommodation, but that doesn't always happen, and sometimes people are stuck in there for a year in, a, in temporary accommodation, which is not good for your health, really. Mm-hmm. Another thing that happened is because and we were told this by one of the welfare agencies, that because of the lack of emergency accommodation here, um, someone got put in a taxi and sent to St Kilda for the night. So that's a couple of hours drive. And then at the end of that night, of course, they were back homeless. So yeah, these are the kind of crazy things that happen. And the cost of a taxi, and it's just ridiculous in terms of what... Oh, I know, yeah. But I mean, um, some you know, in the old, in, when we had a caravan park that could take people short term, but people would, you know, the welfare agencies would actually pay for them to stay overnight in the caravan, although they actually denied that. But um, we know people who got put there. Um, so you know, that at least meant that they were in the town that they knew, not shoved builder. I mean, what a recipe for disaster, you know. Mm. Anyway, the caravan park's gone and um, most of the people got rehoused from the caravan park and, and friends of ours who lived in the, who were in the unemployed workers' union who lived there actually said they quite liked living there because um, it was a community thing. You know, you'd see your neighbours out and about the way you don't in a, in a street. But, yeah, it looks like there will be housing built and we're going to make sure that, especially if it's on Crown land, which is, public land, um, of course, stolen land, um, that 
that um, that stays in the, as much as in the public sector it's got to because the idea of a private housing organisation taking over the ha- managing housing which has been built on public land doesn't quite fit well with us. No, and of course the point you made earlier about 25% of your income, because if it's if it's not public housing, then it's going to be social housing, which is which is a higher. It's usually yeah, 33%. Yeah, which can be anything. Yeah. Yeah. I've got that great poster put out by Rahu, you know, Rental and Housing Union, and it it clearly shows, you know, that that the, that affordable housing can be up to um, up to 80% of the market rate. So. Mm. Affordable to whom, you know, it's a sliding scale when you use vague terms like that. Well, we so, keep we keep making the point that if you're if you're in Elizabeth Street, Melbourne, homeless, sleeping on the gutter, if mm. someone says good news, the government's building affordable housing, it won't make a lot of difference to your life. Mm. No, that's right. And did you see the terrible news that a homeless person got killed on yeah, yeah, yeah. on the road? Naturally, if they'd had a place to live, they wouldn't have been crossing the road on at three a.m. You no. know, so. No. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Just in the time left, Jess, um, the diesel plant, we were down there opposing it and uh, I went to a couple of rallies down there at the time and uh, uh, what's happened since? Is it? I don't know well, if it's kind of, oh, because we've had this influx of new people moving down here because for various reasons they want to get out of the city, it's almost sort of like news that people don't even relate to that whole fight that we had. I mean, we were trying to stop water production for the whole of the Melbourne area from being privatised. Well, it was privatised. And um, now the state government, in its, um, in its magnificence, decided to regularly order water, which is not really needed. Um, but they're ordering... They've got a standard order in, which means that, of course, the company is making some kind of money out of it. And the state of Victoria is still paying for the borrowing that they that that consortium did to actually fund the thing. One of the other objections at the time, apart from the privatisation of water, which in itself is bad enough, but uh, that the the brine that um, in the desalination process was going to be poured back into the into the sea, and the fear was that that could upset the entire ecological balance of the of the marine life there. Is yeah, well. What's happening yes. there? We no ideas. Oh well, we haven't heard anything lately. I mean, it's not just brine. That's the thing. It's also all the chemicals that are used to clean the sieves, which basically the marine ecosystem is shoved through to produce um, clear, clear, non-salty water. So it's a mixture of, of toxic chemicals and brine. And um, as far as we know, it's still being pumped out, and then the solid waste is still being taken to the toxic waste dump um, on the edge of the city, oh, Lindbrook. Lindbrook, yeah. Listerfield, Lindbrook, yeah. whichever one it is, yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah, so I that's mean, we anyway. <laughs> yeah, we haven't heard any sort of intel. I mean, I wouldn't mind betting that, the, you know, the investors would regard it as a pretty bad deal because they haven't, it hasn't been, hasn't been a huge demand for water, therefore they haven't been able to really ramp it up, but it's still running. And it, the interesting thing with a Victorian contract is that they weren't contracted to automatically supply a certain amount of water um, irrespective of the need. It had to be actually the Victorian government deciding to help them hold their hand by ordering the water, and that's what's been going on. Mm. Right, and uh, desalination is also a really energy-intensive process, oh, isn't it? yeah, that's right. I mean, we still, until just recently, we still had the billboards up 
saying about the amount of energy that it takes to produce, you know, one litre of desalinated water, and that was our one of our main issues. Is that it's a very energy-intensive and, and produces huge amount of carbon emissions, you know, because the power from it is coming um, from, you know, our dirty, our dirty stations over in the Latrobe Valley. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, well. There's another issue down there. I don't know if you know much of, or you, whether you know enough about it to say anything. But I think about now the environment effects is, um, process is about to conclude. Um, but that that um, that rare earths plant, the the plant further east in um, in Gippsland, down yeah, near down near lakes e- down near lakes entrance, which Co- we've talked about, about. Yeah, Cobar one. That's the one, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I just saw this morning that it's been knocked back. Oh, good, because I, I know about now the minister was going to give the response. We were hoping that yeah. was the response. Well, uh, well that, I saw a few celebratory um, posts oh. going around Facebook. Oh, that's great so, news. Yeah. You've, announced, you've, made, you've announced some great news on city limits, which is a pity because <laughs> we usually, this program is all about depression and keeping people oh, feeling yeah, well, But, you know, it's that thing, yeah, if you really, well, you can, it, a lot of it depends on the electoral cycle, really, but you can be really determined. You can have everything in place and you can still lose, but um, that sounded like that was a success. Like with the um, gas um, plant that was Hastings, um, in Hastings, yeah, that was a Two in a year. We, we interviews we have on this program. We don't, we, we don't expect this sort of thing, but two in a year. Hastings and if this one now, it's yeah. it's great news actually. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, well we've, yeah, we'll have to oh, we'll have to end up soon. But yeah, um, finishing on a, on a on a cheery note. That's yeah. Bad news, <laughs> well, are there any places that listeners can go to support at the oh, causes that you're behind? Yeah. yeah, that's it, the housing thing. Yeah, so we've got a Facebook page we've just set up, Housing Matters Bass Coast. That's the name of our group. And we'll be we'll be continuing to meet and if we have enough people. And so that, we'll be continuing to fight to get good, reliable, yeah. And um, just the details yeah. of that public meeting, Jess? So oh, yeah, so it's on, it's on Saturday the 4th of December at 1 o'clock in the Baptist Church. We right. didn't particularly want to be in the Baptist Church, but the council offices are all being used for COVID um, checking, so that's what happened. About to say, good to see you going to church, Jess. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've been they've been pretty good so far. We wanted to be in the council foyer like we were last time, but yeah, that wasn't to be. So, all right. Well, look, we'll keep in touch with it. But thanks for your time today, and um, good luck with the whole campaign. Thank you. Then. All right. Right Thanks, okay. Jess. Bye. Jessica Harrison there, who's, as you can tell, a wonderful activist down that part of the world in Montaggy, and uh, we'll keep in touch with what's happening with that one. Another housing issue. Jessica Harrison there, talking with Kevin and Zeb from the 3CR team. Good morning. I'm Evan Wallace. It is a beautiful Monday today. We're expecting a top of 26 degrees, mostly sunny weather, but also with a very high UV index. So do wear some sun cream. This is Monday morning, and Monday morning always means lots of excellent music, and this is no exception. Here's Cold de Sac by Dan Sultan. me mm-hmm. 
And Sultan there with Cul-de-sac. It's Monday morning. I'm Evan Wallace, and this is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Now, again, we're going to rejoin Kevin and Zeb, who this time are speaking with Pam Morgan. Pam is a passionate campaigner who is right at the forefront of the campaign to save the Collingwood Children's Farm. It is 7.48 and... Hope you enjoy this interview. Pam, the the children's farm and the uh, garden there. What's the history of that? How did the children's farm come into being in the first place? And uh, and secondly, how did the gardens get there? In in um, well, that's it basically. What's the history of the place? Well, the farm started up in 1979, and I. Uh, went there as manager about six months after that. There was someone before me who didn't quite work out. So I can't actually tell you about the negotiations that were involved with um, the groups that formed the community gardens, but they were actually two community groups. Um, And that was the Greek Elderly Citizens and the Turkish Welfare Association. And they were invited onto the farm to... um, have plots and grow veggies. So very early days of the place. They were there before I arrived, and I arrived about six months after the initial opening of the farm. 
Um, and I guess, in a way, they, the, the plots became a bit more formalised as individual plots as time went on. But, you know, there, there were basically these two groups that were two local community groups that were associated with the development of the gardens. Uh, and the children's farm itself, how did it come into being in the first place? Oh, right. So the children's farm was an idea um, from the, the recreation at the officer at the time, Peter Harry, and he was very conscious that local Collingwood residents had sort of nowhere to go. There were these big farmlands down around the convent that were being used commercially by a florist in Smith Street and he was paying very low wages to local people to pick some of his flowers. And the rest of it was just grazing for his cattle. So um, Peter Harry took the initiative of, of getting together a proposal to have some of the land so that local children could have more of an outdoor experience. And council supported him, a lease was negotiated, and the initial um, activities started up, which included school visits, um, weekend activities, etc., etc. When I went there, basically I went there on my own, a sole worker, and I had time off after I'd milked the cow. Well, the cow, actually, there's a bit more to the cow because I, I just saw those things. We didn't have advertising. We just made the place interesting enough that kids would come there. So one of those things was to get a cow in calf and eventually um, kids started coming down to see if this cow had had a calf yet, that sort of thing. So it was just a sort of growing local interest. And um, and then, you know, the, the school visits became more regular. There were quite a few local schools at the time who had permanent, spots in the week where they'd bring their kids down and some amazing teachers in the area too who saw, uh, there was one I, she said, she was from um, West Richmond and said um, she thought her kids, the kids at the school lived in one of the most, well the best places in Melbourne they had the river, they could walk up the, to the farm from along the river they had access to the city, all within walking distance, and yet it was seen as an underprivileged school. And she was she was always boosting people with enthusiasm about what was available to them in their area. Mm. Um, ask me another question, because I'm rambling on. Well, it, it was. Well, it's, I mean, I've got to say that last point you made. It's quite a remarkable place, really, having that that wonderful venue there, right on the Yarra, right on the edge of the city, right on the edge of suburbia. I've been in urban suburbia, but there's this beautiful spot right there. Um, but also the the groups you mentioned who started up the the garden, who came and, and began the garden, um, was it significant that they represented those communities? What? Look, I imagine so. They were two key community groups in the um, municipality of Collingwood at that stage. Um, it was called before amalgamations, and, and so they were invited as relatively active community organisations in the area to, to participate in this project. 
and some of the people there today would be uh, descendants or or friends or whatever of those original people. A lot of a lot of the um, Greek elderly, of course, have passed on because it's forty years ago that the farm started, or a bit over forty years. But and a lot of the Turkish people who are a younger age group, um, they have moved on to other suburbs, and it's not. I don't even know if that group exists anymore, but that was the origins of the, the garden plot. Well, I know it's an area of interest to you, Pam, but what, what is the significance of having those gardens there, do you think? Well, I think, I think when cultures and eating patterns involve fresh food, um, I think it's important that people have access to growing food. In fact, an enormous amount of food has always been grown in Melbourne. But when you haven't got the space, it's pretty hard to keep up those traditions. But it's, it was a place of teaching as well in that um, a lot of the local kids would just hang around there and see what people were doing and they'd end up going home with a bag full of veggies given to them. Um, so it was just creating, I think, a bit more awareness of the food culture and it's an interesting thing Dr Norman Swan mentioned that the longevity of the people who have the Mediterranean diet is well known but he said the second best place or longest living population of European migrants is Melbourne were growing their own food, they were able to main, maintain a lot of those traditions from their own country of having a very much a plant-based diet. Yeah, and I might come back to that, but bringing us to today, we're being, the reason you're on today, of course, is that it has been closed down. The committee has uh, claims that there's that it's too dangerous and um, the local people claim they've got some ulterior motives. What, what's your position on what's happening at the moment? Um... I think the farm has changed its direction a lot and it's not, uh, I, I suppose, not respond, responsive to the local community and their needs in the same way it was at the start. And I, I'd say that across the board. It was a local project. It was supported by Collingwood Council and there was an expectation priority would be given to the people who lived in the area. That was the reason that it was supported. Um, and it seems to me that what's happened is it's become a um, eastern suburbs destination. I'm really look. I have to just speak from basically uh, talking to other people. I haven't been to the farm for a number of years, and it's over 20 years since I worked there. Uh, so it is a long time. But there is a, a Facebook Facebook group of uh, old Collingwood Children's Farm kids, which I, I'm allowed to be a member of still. Um, and the feeling is that it's no longer a place that gives gives support for local people to be involved in the same way that it used to. So, you know, there's still a Young Farmers program. I, I think there was some holiday program they were running um, for young people, but it was almost a hundred bucks a day, I think, to to participate in that. That certainly doesn't sound as though they're 
unless they had special concessions for people who um, lived, well, were low-income people, there's a lot still... Yarra's an interesting municipality and always has been because of its extremes of wealth and poverty. And I think that still exists. I haven't been looking at the figures again for quite some time. But you, you still have extremely disadvantaged populations living in that area, as well as, obviously, the sort of housing boom in a city, you know, dwellers. So uh, I think any organisation in Collingwood that sees itself, well, it's Abbotsford actually, but sees itself as uh, providing for the local community needs to be actually looking at who's coming, who's using the place, and is it accessible to the local people? And so a lot of that's sort of the image that is created, and we were always very careful to have local kids involved in showing people around the farm and and displaying it to others and being seen as belonging, you know, having some sort of ownership over that place. And that was quite an intentional um, direction that we took to give them status where they might well be ignored. Otherwise. And I think that's one of the criticisms at the moment, isn't it? One of the one of the points made by those who who have been the plot holders is that they're trying to privatise it in some ways, and and in fact almost um, almost gentrified. I guess you could argue in terms of what's happened in the inner suburbs. Um, in terms of the plots, I don't know about, about gentrification so much, although the plots have always been pretty messy. And if you look at anyone gardening on a hillside in Turkey or in you know a patch of rough ground in Greece, they they use everything that's available to them: rocks and bits of wood. You know, they're not necessarily a, a British, you know, potager that's halfway between a a food-producing garden and a decorative garden. They definitely have a purpose. They're there to produce food. And you use whatever materials you can scrounge. So there is a little bit of that. But I think um, what's happening now is this... There's a, a strong movement around cities for sustainable food systems. And so uh, a lot of land is taken up by people who might want to start a small business enterprise. So I think that's more the direction that the of what's happening with the plots at the moment. There was a study done by a fellow from Chris Williams from Burnley or University of Melbourne as it is now on the potential to have a sort of small enterprise plots there that it could be much more productive and provide a market and so on. So it's, yeah, it's not just about gentrification. It is about this sort of small business enterprise food-related systems that, you know, I'm quite happy to participate in. I go to my local farmer's market, etc. I think it's great, but I don't... The issue is about who should be able or to to use the land down at the children's farm. Yeah. So this who, is quite a who, thing even... 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, go on. This was a thing even back in the day I was there where people would come down and say, oh, God, this land is magic. We could, we could with an acre here, we could run a business growing berry fruits. And I, <laughs> they always assumed that that was the best use for the land instead of looking at the constitution as a children's farm. Was that the best use of the land? And I felt anyone who, who had that sort of initiative to run a business could also run it elsewhere. And so I never went in for those sort of concepts. But, um, you know, times have changed in that many years very much. Yeah. The committee itself, where is it elected from? It's anyone can stand for the committee of management. It's it's an open elective system. I don't, as far as I know, you don't have to be uh, even a local community member. Mm. Well, it's me. Like, we don't know much about that, but the um, yeah, right, and and of course um, the, um, the the campaign going on at the moment. Uh, uh, where do you think it's going to end up? Do you think there's a chance of uh, of a brief being reopened and people being allowed to go back to their plots. I really, I really don't know. The you know the last I heard that, and it was that the committee wanted to appoint the person who would negotiate, rather than it being an you know someone with independence. So mm. I really don't know what hope there is of resolving it. But there's so much. So much memory and history for all those people involved in the plots. And there's such a history, you know, 40 years is a long time. It doesn't mean any one of them has been there that that length of time. But, you know, the existence, how they work, how they operate in the local community, the food that gets distributed from those places, that history has been there for a long time. Yeah. and the fact the fact that uh, they want to, or there's a suggestion they want to turn it over to, to making profit from that land, uh, it is on Crown land. Should that affect it? Um, look, I'm not even sure that it's a profit thing motive that's driving it. It might be a wage motive, you know, that um, more people could learn about urban agriculture and they could get a small wage in the process or something like that. I don't, I mean, the other things that are happening at the farm, like wedding photos and sometimes, you know, you can't use the back paddock for grazing because the cow poos are too big and then when they have the market there, people might treat in them and that's not OK. You know, there's all these aspects of the farm as a whole that um, have got to do with this, need to continue to support it. There's less uh, less grants, fewer grants coming in all the time. I, I understand, but, you know, I'm really completely out of touch with the current situation. But um, that's. I think that's why charging people for activities is uh, becoming more important to keeping going. But it's not necessarily... Um, Fulfilling that original charter of, of adding a, a whole new range of experience to the local community and particularly those who are least able to 
get away from the city and, you know, find a bit of country peace. Uh, and that's where the gentrification might have had an impact in the terms of the sort of people who are now on the committee vis-a-vis who were there originally. Yes, definitely. I think that's the biggest impact, yes. Yeah. Just to finish up, Pam, um, your broad, the broader area of, of sustainable food and, and cities and things, chewing COVID, um, has that had an impact on, on the whole idea of people growing their own food and uh, and becoming sustainable? Oh, it certainly has. I think I think it's been huge activity on all sorts of networks of um, people just starting, learning, you know, how to grow their own food. Um, big conversations all the time <laughs> with varied levels of success. But, yes, I think it has. Having that extra string to your bow... <laughs> That's a whole other subject, of course. But uh, all right. But look, thanks for your time today, Pab, and um, let's hope they can resolve the situation at the children's farm and it can get back to something like the original that you were involved with. Yes, it's a lovely place. <laughs> right. Okay, Pab. Thanks so much. Okay. Thanks, Kevin. Bye. Okay. Bye. Pam Morgan there talking with Kevin and Zeb from City Limits. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast and isn't the Collingwood Children's Farm such an important part of Melbourne's north? It really is a a critical meeting point. It's a place where people can learn about mm, sustainable farming. People can learn about how we're interacting with the environment. And it's so important that the underlying underlying rationale and the original drivers for the establishment of the farm are maintained going forward. So if you're interested in supporting the cause that Pam Morgan talked with Kevin and Zeb about, do go to megaphone.org.au and search for Protect the Collingwood Community Garden. Uh, great thing to be able to to look at, to, to be able to, to understand and really wanting to support those gardens and its overall Um, ensuring that there's that great connectivity with the community um, and with the wider farm and, yeah, and uh, that it's an important part of Melbourne's north going into the future. It is 8.07am and now we have another track. It's Can't Take Back by Dyson Stringer and Chloe. Yeah. 
This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. That was Can't Take Back. Beautiful song by Dyson, Stringer and Cloher. It is 8.14am. 
Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Listen to Rock and Roots, 2am till 6, every Sunday morning on 8.55am. Melbourne's Community Radio, 3CR. Maybe the colour give me rock and choose. I'm gonna rock away all my blues. We're rock. We're rocking. We're rocking. Rocking this joint tonight. Going down to the corner, see what it's all about. Gonna rock and roll, gonna jump and chow. We're rocking. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. You're about to hear a piece with Jackson McInerney, who's from Stick Together. Um, Jackson speaking with Emma from Blockade Australia about the work that's been done to protect the environment from extractive industries. This is Monday Breakfast on 3CR. The climate debate in Australia has been one characterised by profound levels of government inaction. So often, this lack of committed change at an institutional level is excused by a profit commitment to the fossil fuels industry and the workers it supports. Government officials love to talk, often erroneously, about the numbers of people relying on coal for their incomes. In truth, thermal coal workers make up just 0.29% of so-called Australia's 13 million employees. The political clout of this relatively tiny industry worker-wise comes from the billions of dollars of dirty profit that flows into the coffers of wealthy executives and shareholders. Much effort from the ruling classes goes into painting the myopic picture of what work is, the exchange of labour for capital to the benefit of a powerful few. Last week, we witnessed work of a different kind. The full-time hard work of environmental activists from Blockade Australia was on display in Newcastle as they shut down the biggest coal port in the world for 11 consecutive days from the 8th to the 18th of November. We're lucky to be joined now by Emma from Blockade Australia, who has been with the group through these actions, which use lock-ons, tripods, abseiling attachments and machinery shutdowns to stop the bigger machine for more than a week. Emma, can you talk a little bit about why you're doing this work? Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jackson. Um, uh, so... I'm doing this work because um, you know, I've come to the realisation that the climate crisis and broader systemic crisis um, that we're in uh, is not going to be changed or brought down by electoral politics or um, system, uh, you know, solutions within the system because, you know, it is creating the problems itself. So, um, you know, people have formed a collective uh, called Blockade Australia um, that is uh, organised offensive resistance um, to Australia um, and its extractive, exploitative regimes um, and, and you know, the climate crisis that it's causing. Um, and so lots of people, uh, including myself, have, you know, given up their um, lives and jobs. You know, I was a midwife and left my job to do this work full time because, um, you know, it, it's uh, unpaid and it's hard, but um, the 
solutions aren't going to come from within and um, obviously this work is never going to be paid and valued under the, the system which is devaluing life itself and its actions. How do you think the coal industry impacts workers in this country? We hear that a lot in the mainstream press. Did you, did you run into any coal workers during these actions? Funnily enough, no, ran into very few workers. There's obviously the train drivers. There's usually a couple of them. Um, uh, they don't usually work in the mines um, themselves. And then at the port, there's um, pretty much no workers. It's all automated. There's massive monstrous machines which are loading millions of tonnes of coal ripped from the earth to be um, exported. Uh, and they're all automated, um, you know, Push, uh, you know, people um, pushing buttons um, in a room far away control lots of machinery, um, and so that takes very few workers. And then the only workers at the port really are the security who are there to, you know, protect this exploitative extractive supply chain. So yeah, unsurprisingly, very few workers um, in in the industry. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it is surprising from the rhetoric that's deployed by politicians about coal workers. But yeah, um, it was a, a feature of the footage that Blockade Australia have been broadcasting that there was nobody in the background of the activists, maybe a few security guards, as you say. And it's a frightening factor of capitalism around the world that, you know, one of the jobs you always see advertised is military and police and jailers. You know, these are the these are the careers that are on offer. Uh, to, to oh. the young, you know, I think it's a, a striking feature. Yeah, that's right, because they're the, you know, enforcement arms of this, of the system, you know, to um, because I, I guess, you know, from the beginning people have been resisting this, you know, extractive, exploitative system since colonisation, um, you know, 250 years ago and, and before that, you know, across the world. Um, and... Um, people it didn't make logical sense to treat the land in the way that we do and to treat people in the way that we do and so you know we need all these like you know um paid incentivized gang members like police um and politicians and the rest of them that kind of you know enforce these draconian laws which don't make any sense they're prioritizing um you know ripping up this earth um over over caring for you know what sustains us so I just want to play a bit of audio from Hannah, who suspended herself from a stacker reclaimer, which moves coal from trains to boats in Newcastle, as she explains how she made up her mind to do this action. This is humans trying to survive. This is humans trying to overcome the system that is killing us, that is enslaving us. And we're trying to induce the social tipping points, which will give us a chance at another generation. <laughs> what a wild thing to want. If we can be brave, then I reckon we've got the upper hand. And we have to be brave. I was thinking about this the other night. I was like, yeah, definitely scares me, the thought of running through piles of coal and getting, you know, followed by a police helicopter. That's not fun. That sounds terrible. But you know what scares me more? I just think back to New Year's Eve when I, I thought I was going to die in a fire that's caused by climate change. And that's the barest glimpse of what's going to happen. So Hannah's description there of the 2019-2020 bushfires is familiar to far too many people. In the shadow of these catastrophic fires and after all the collective gasping and cooing at COP26, what's your sense of the urgency of this matter? Yeah, I think that the number of 
um, disasters that these you know once in a lifetime rare natural disasters supposedly that people have lived through um, and and are living through right now um, and and then just like the you know yeah absolute joke that COP twenty six is like um, kind of proves the responsibility um, that we have to take this work into our own hands. Um, you know, the people at COP26 who are, are, are causing these problems, we're never really going to come together and 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 just, like, magically change their attitudes at this conference, um, you know, when they've been intentionally, um, you know, ex extracting and exploiting, you know, land for profit and viewing everything um, in this, like, capitalist framework. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they were just never really going to create solutions that were going to give us a way forward. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, that there's so much language um, about criminal activity, you know, like Hannah, you know, spoke there about her fear of being chased over coal stacks, but... You know, the retribution of the state doesn't end there. You know, the so-called environment minister of all people in New South Wales, Matt Keane, called for activists to have the book thrown at them in court and Labor's opposition police spokesperson, Walt Accord, supported the creation of a special task force to deal with environmental activists. And the charges that have been laid against members of your organisation are really intense. You know, they're like, intent to kill or injure a person on a railway, for example, and, and carry prison sentences of up to 25 years. Why do you think these types of actions frighten the ruling class so much? Yeah, great question. I think um, I think because they're very effective um, where, you know, we're doing politics in a different way um, and we're using collective action that they don't have a mechanism um, to really... Uh, stop at the moment um you know we saw them try with the task force and things but people and, and all these um extra charges and other repression tactics that um you mentioned and more uh and people continue taking action because you know like you said before um this is so urgent um you know in response to what you actually mentioned earlier is like um and why this is so urgent the people involved who are continuing despite this repression you know, multiple people involved in um, this, like, I'd say half a dozen or so of, um, you know, the 28 people arrested have had to actually, yeah, are in their 20s and have had to flee their homes multiple times because of um, bushfires, because of floods, um, you know, and, and lived through them multiple times, you know, at, and, you know, people in the Pacific Islands are, you know, having to rebury their dead who are washing up on the shores because because of ocean um, level rises. So, you know, yeah, they they tried all these repression tactics because I think these these things are very effective. We're actually, um, we're targeting like strategic uh, economic and political bottlenecks. And when I say economic, I don't just mean money. I mean the actual supply chains of how the economy functions. Um, I don't think we can beat them on capital, on money. Um, they're always going to have more money than us. So, but what we're doing is actually affecting their supply chains so that they can't function and their extractive, exploitative systems cannot function. So they tried heaps of different repression uh, tactics to, to stop this. Um, they had, this task force had helicopters out. It had police dogs out. They were giving people those ridiculous sentences. And it's not really something that we expect to stick in the courts, but it's something that they're using to scare people out of 
further action. You know, they raided people's homes um, who, who weren't even involved in this. Um, they seized people's cars and they did pain compliance techniques on people who were immobilised or um, locked on, um, you know, all kinds of different things. And they're, they're all just scare tactics and it all just proves that the, the state doesn't know how to deal with this or stop it from happening. So they're just going to kind of scare you out of trying to do it. But the reality of the situation is that the crisis that we're facing is so much scarier and will result in so much more suffering and death than um, yeah, what, what we're facing now and what we will face because of this action. Yeah, it's, it's really inspiring. I recommend uh, everybody checking out the blockadeaustralia.com website where you can read stories and quotes from all of these people. You know, I think there were 20 actions over the 11 days. Is is that right, Emma? Yeah, that's right. There was, um, you know, anywhere between one to three actions each day which targeted the rail line going into the world's largest coal port, Newcastle coal port, or in the port itself. Um, So, yeah, for, for most of the... 20 day i'm sorry 11 days um and the 20 actions the that supply chain was out of action you know only took you know about um 28 people kind of putting their bodies on the line um, and getting in the way of those extractive industries to do that yeah it's really interesting what you say too about economic bottlenecks like as you say uh it's it's a complicated process to take on international finance and capital and you know the way they can redirect funds and and redirect ships and and whatever but if you can stop people in mines you know receiving critical supplies or supplies from reaching port you know that that can be a uh, a really profound impact on their profit, but also just their their functioning. And we've seen that historically too, with you know actions uh, and secondary boycotts around uh, ports, and you know stopping medical supplies and and, and things like that to really uh, put the squeeze on the system. Uh, uh, I wonder what you guys have planned next, if you wanted to talk about that. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, so next we are going to Sydney. That is from the June 27th to July 2nd. So there will be a week of yeah organised direct action in Sydney. Again, um, we'll be targeting kind of like economic supply chain choke points that really affect the flow of resources or capital or the system from functioning um, because that is unfortunately what we need to do to stop what is happening. Can I ask, it's a newish organisation, Blockade Australia. It seems to be deploying some similar tactics to Extinction Rebellion that have been running for a few years now. What's the kind of reason for the creation of Blockade Australia and how does it differ from that organisation? Yeah, I think... Um, it's, you know, quite different because we, uh, I mean, obviously there are, you know, similarities across um, direct action tactics, um, you know, the, the world over and groups over that use a lot of similar tactics, but obviously that's kind of a, you know, prominent one um, in the environmental sphere. But I think where Blockade Australia um, uh, differentiates is the, you know, effective 
um, sorry, the offensive um, tactics on those like economic and political uh, bottlenecks and supply chains. And so rather than we're necessarily just disrupting or, or doing actions, a direct action wherever you are, it's actually going, we need to, um, we're, we're creating mobilisations so that go, that are, that are spaced out with organi organising time in between to build power and, um, and then have uh, disruptive mobilizations that will, you know, uh, increase in, um, you know, uh, uh, capacity like numbers and, and frequency and, and the duration that it's able to go for as well. Um, and, you know, we're, we're doing, yep, yeah, so we're doing these periodic mobilizations that um, target these kind of choke points and going, we can't just necessarily mobilize where we are, we need to pick the you know biggest target um, that has the it, that is the most effective and going to affect um, you know the system in Australia the most and so um, we've started with the world's largest coal port and next we're going um, to Sydney um, which is uh, pretty much in the heart of um, where colonisation and these like this extractive exploitative system began on this continent. Hannah and Emma from Blockade Australia speaking there with Stick Together's Jackson McInerney about the recent action to shut down the world's largest coal port in Newcastle, New South Wales, and the unacknowledged work of activists across the country. You've been listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Tune in tomorrow for Tuesday Breakfast. It's great having your company as always, and we will catch you next time. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.